Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Good afternoon, Scott. Hey, buddy. I'm glad to talk to you again. I am glad to talk to you during this COVID lockdown. I wish we were in the same room. Well, um, you know, my house, my, my office here in my house is empty. And so I had to work real hard to try and create a little tiny mini studio because um, <laughs> all of our furniture is is down, pictures are down, beds are put up because we're moving. And so uh, the house is just one big echo chamber. So I hope it sounds okay. Yeah, I think it will. I'm, I can't talk about you moving. It makes me sad. Well, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we're joined by Bobby Ross today. Bobby is uh, editor-in-chief of the Christian Chronicle. And um, I, Bobby, I've, uh, I've enjoyed your publication for a good long time. Um, I know some of, the, uh, some of the folks who write for your publication, but um, I don't know whether I mentioned this, but I actually wrote a, an, an article for your publication back, I think it was in the early 2000s. Um, but uh, I'm really glad you joined us as a as a a journalist today. Thank you for thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about um, your job as editor in chief of ChristianChronicle.org. Sure, as editor, I'm in charge of pretty much all the the journalism, the news, the features, opinion content. I'm you know, it's a small staff, so I do a lot of writing as, as well as editing. Small staff, I, I cover a lot of, we, we cover Churches of Christ. There are about 12,000 Churches of Christ. Uh, the acapella thread of, of the Restoration or Stone Campbell movement. We have about 135,000 print subscribers that we mail a tabloid publication to every month. And then increasingly, people will get news from us as well on, on online. We had in March with the tornadoes in Tennessee and with the coronavirus and all that happened there, we had close to a half million page views, which wow. is which is a record for us. And, and, you know, it's sad that the news was so negative that caused us to do that. But we we're right. also excited just the fact that people do know we, we you don't have to wait a week or two in, in your for your postman to come and deliver the Chronicle any, any more that you can read it at christianchronicle.org. Yeah. And you also, uh, I mean, you have a long story, uh, journalism career. So this is, this is what you do, uh, now, but you've been in other forms of secular journalism as well, correct? That is true. I, I graduated with a journalism degree from Oklahoma Christian in 1990. So I'm actually coming up somehow on my 30th anniversary of graduating from college and, and, and did about three years at small newspapers and then worked for nine years at, at the Oklahoman, which is the newspaper here in Oklahoma City where I live. Then I did three years at the Associated Press before the Chronicle called in 2005 and kind of gave me a deal I couldn't refuse when they said, would you like to come work for the Lord and take a big pay cut. So I've, I've been doing that for about. <laughs> <laughs> That's an offer you can't refuse. Exactly. <laughs> so that the listeners know uh, why we asked you to come on, Bobby, um, you wrote an article for, um, this is not for the Christian Chronicle. This was for uh, religionunplugged.com, an article entitled the gap between the news media and people of faith. Um, 
that article really uh, was an interesting perspective uh, coming from a journalist who is also um, hearing some of the things that are discussed within uh, maybe evangelical circles or within certain corners of the evangelical circle. But when I read your your article, it was around the same time that I read um, this tweet from Donald Trump. And uh, I want to read the tweet out loud just because I think um, it contextualizes a little bit about where you were coming from. So I want to kind of set you up by by reading this out loud. Scott, before you read that, since Bobby oh, yeah, is the, the first time uh, contributor to our podcast, we should rehearse our three tenets. We should rehearse our three tenets. Okay. Uh, which, go ahead, start. Yeah, the first one is that sacred cows make great barbecue. That's right. We will <laughs> scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please. That's right. And the second one is we let our flag fly proudly. So we robustly defend our corner of the boxing ring when we need to. And third is bros before politicos. We're brothers first in everything else we figure out as we go along. That's right. Thank you for that, Cole. I you appreciate bet. you reminding us. Okay, so here's the tweet. The lamestream media is the dominant force in trying to get me to keep our country closed as long as possible in the hope that it will be detrimental to my election success. The real people want to get back to work ASAP. We will be stronger than ever before. This was on uh, 325, and I've linked it in show notes. But um, there are two parts to this tweet that I think um, I really want to unpack and um, and kind of deal with. One is this idea that, uh, well, I guess one of the things that bothers me is that this is this ends up being more about his election than it does the the virus itself. But I was really, I guess. Uh, I really reacted to the idea of the real people um, and how the the media or the lamestream media, however you want to uh, describe that, are not real people. They're not real. They're they're fake. And this is this is a, a thing that happens within our culture. Donald Trump is not the author of this, nor is he the um, the only voice in this. It's just an example. But the reason, Bobby, that uh, that this idea of the enemy of the people, um, I think resonates with me is that even Nikita Khrushchev understood the, um, insidious nature of that phrase in his address to, um, the 20th Congress of the communist party in 1956, he said the following Stalin, who absolutely did not tolerate collegiality in leadership and in work acted not through persuasion, but by imposing his concepts and demanding absolute submission to his opinion. Stalin originated the concept of enemy of the people. This term automatically made it unnecessary that the ideological errors of a man be proven. It made possible the use of the cruelest repression against anyone who in any way disagreed with Stalin, against those who were only suspected of hostile intent, against those who had bad reputations. Um, so I've kind of, I've kind of contextualized, uh, why your article, uh, piqued my interest. So talk to us a little bit about the thesis of your article, which by the way, Bobby is, um, it's listed in show notes, but talk to us a little bit about the thesis of your article. Um, Oh, sure. Well, I, I, I write a weekly 
column every Friday about just kind of analyzing and headlines in the world of religion news. And that particular week, it just seemed like I was running into a lot of, you know, like there were two different groups of friends I was seeing on, on Facebook and, and one side was constantly beating up against the media. They're the enemy of the people, you know, you know, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, looking for somebody to blame, I guess is what I'm saying. And one side was eager to blame the media for everything that was going wrong. And the other side was eager to bet, to blame president Trump for everything that was going wrong. So I think that's kind of what sure. was in my mind is I kind of got it, got into this a little bit just to kind of, you know, because from my perspective, being a journalist and being a person of faith, I kind of feel like I can see, I, I understand where both sides are coming from. And I have, I kind of sympathize in some ways with both sides, but also get frustrated a lot with both sides. So this column was kind of, an effort to try to say something about that and maybe say something that might cause people to step back and reassess their position and think about where they're coming from on this. And, and the way I led into that was just kind of talking about, you know, I've, I've, a, a conversation I had with a woman I've known all my life who'd said, and I'd ask her, do you really believe the news media is the, the enemy of the people? She immediately replied and said, yes, I do. And then, you know, the article kind of goes on to say that's kind of a strange thing for a, a, a career journalist to hear from his own mother. So it's kind of that that was that right. Was <laughs> it's interesting to me that she identifies um, media as depersonalized. Right. I mean, she doesn't think you're the enemy of the people. No, she doesn't think I'm the enemy of the people at all. And I think it's part of it is just the definition of of who 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 the news media is because sure. you know, some people the news media is are the, the cable TV talking heads. So when you say news media, you're talking about Fox and CNN and MSNBC and you perceive one of those which whichever of those specific broadcast networks based on your own personal political and religious beliefs and then but some you know so some people would never you know but when i think of news media i'm thinking of my friends who work for newspapers and wire services and work for entities that that do try to report fairly and you know offer some balanced view of the world and, and not push an agenda so i think part of it is just a confusion over terminology in the, in the news media, typically when those who want to criticize the news media use that term, it's like, you know, this big giant entity. It's not real people who have families and kids. And, you know, it, it's this big, it's this big impersonal monster that's out there doing whatever it is that we're accusing it of doing. Last night I was reading an op-ed in the Washington Post. Um, it was by a group called the Lincoln Group. Um, which includes George Conway and some other people. Um, and uh, the, the thesis of the op-ed was we're, we're very interested in making sure that Donald Trump doesn't get elected. And then, uh, but it was interesting to me, the number of people uh, who uh, in comments were saying stuff about the Washington Post, 
like it's their fault that the article was written. I know that they decided to publish it, but that is a different thing than deciding that this is what we believe, right? I mean, it's one thing to say that um, scientists say the sky is blue. It's another thing um, to be asserting that the sky is blue. I mean, reporting on what people say or what people believe doesn't necessarily mean that um, news is always endorsing it. I think you're you're mostly on to something. I mean, in a in a perfect world, you're absolutely right. The media is not making value judgments. They're just reporting what's happening and it's up for people to to read it and decide. But of course, there's so much happening in the world that that by the mere the mere act of me deciding what story I'm gonna do or what I'm gonna report on, in some ways I've kind of shown my bias already with just with just what I've decided to report on, if that makes any sense. It does. Yeah. I guess I guess I'm asking a question and Cole, this is gonna this is where you're gonna get upset. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm asking a question. Is there any such thing as just just the facts of reporting just facts? Do you feel like that that's a part of what you try to do as a journalist? Is that is that attainable in journalism from your point of view, Bobby? I think it is, I, and I, but I think it's much harder than it used to be because when I started 30 years ago, a lot more people would get a daily newspaper in their driveway every morning or every, every afternoon. More people would watch the evening news. What's like most Americans started with a common set of facts. We had kind of a basis you know, I, we've watched the news. We know w- what's happened in the world, or we've all read the same newspaper. But we have a we have a the same basis, which to even to even start a conversation, we've got uh, you know we've got common facts, and then we can disagree on what we think about those. Whereas now, with with social media, with Twitter, Facebook, the various twenty four hour cable, blabbering, talking heads. We, we don't have that anymore. People are in their own little, I'm, I'm missing the word that I'm trying to come up with, but you know, basically everybody has their own little place where they're getting their information and, and they're filtering it in a lot of cases to go places to get information, to reinforce what they already think or believe. So we're, not only are we disagreeing a lot of times on really controversial or really personal issues, but we're, we're disagreeing and not even believing the same facts or agreeing whether something is fact or truth. So that, that just makes it a lot harder. But I mean, back to the original question on is, are you, is it able, are you able to do factual reporting? I think there are like the Associated Press, the, the, I think, still does a real nice job of keeping most of its stories down the middle and a person being able to read it and not determine where the reporter is coming from. I think there are some other major media, which I will decline to name, that that would would say we're journalists, we just report the news. But then you see a lot of their content and a lot of the articles they write all seem to have a common enemy so it's hard for a typical reader who may not see the person that that newspaper portrays as the enemy as the enemy 
see them as well no they're not reporting news they're pushing they're pushing an agenda and they're part yeah. of the opposition they're not just somebody out there trying to report facts Cole, before you before you respond i want to say that i do think that there are probably some um facets of what's happening in the media nowadays that are different than before insofar as it seems that media is oftentimes making itself a part of the story in ways that they used to uh, avoid. So for example, I'll go ahead and name them, but CNN, uh, you know, when they are attacked, when they feel attacked by Donald Trump, uh, seem to react to that attack almost uh, almost in pugilistic ways. And it seems like we as consumers are watching a fight between a news organization and uh, and their their opponent. I don't know if it's always been that way, but it feels that way now. Well, Bobby, I, I, I like the thesis that you, of your article when you end, because you're saying, what are we to do? And your answer is essentially, we've got to keep doing our job of reporting news, naming our sources, except in rare extenuating cases, and trying to build context for the stories we're telling. I think that is absolutely true. And I think that's a good way for you to um, advise the readers of your article of some hopeful ways forward. So I really like that. Oh, thank you. I will, yeah, yeah. I, when Scott says this is going to upset Cole, this is not upsetting Cole at all. In fact, it really, everything we're saying here jibes with um, how I see my role as a teacher of rhetoric. So in this podcast, Bobby, I often talk about what it means to be a Christian citizen from a perspective of a rhetorician or someone who tries to analyze discourse. And I, what I want to say about news reporting is I don't think there's ever such a thing as objective reporting, ever. And I say that because whatever facts are trying to be reported are mitigated through language, and language is never neutral. And I, I chuckle at Fox News sometimes because anytime... <laughs> I'm chuckling now. You can hear it. Anytime a uh, a senator criticizes another senator in a way that might make conservatives happy, instead of reporting, Senator Jones criticized Senator Smith today over this bill, they'll always use the verb slams. Senator so-and-so slams Senator Jones. And it makes me laugh because it's so overt. It's uh -huh. so pointed. Uh -huh. But even when it's not that pointed... I do believe it's rhetorical, although I would say sometimes it's only rhetorical long term. So let me give you an example. I had this example ready for today, and you just talked about the Associated Press, and I'm glad you did. I this uh, a tweet appeared yesterday that compared these two headlines, and so I went and made sure that these were actual headlines from the Associated Press, and they were. The first headline is from 2015. And it says, BREAKING, in all caps, Obama sends $4 trillion spending plan to Congress, comma, pledging help for middle class. Yesterday's tweet, BREAKING, President Trump sends Congress $4.4 trillion spending plan that features soaring deficits. <laughs> now, I would say that both of those statements can be construed as dead accurate. <laughs> but and so no one can say those are not the facts. 
But those are not objective over long term whenever they you study um, macro rhetoric, the effect of discourse over audiences long term. And that's one of many examples that I don't want to bog Man, down that with is yet. that is well played, sir. <laughs> and these are from the Associated Press. And as our friend Cheryl Bacon would say, well, they have a bureau, you know, Fox News doesn't even have a bureau. So the question of whether they're even news or not, which I love Cheryl for bringing that point out, the Associated Press, you know, they're working off bureaus. So I really, I really wonder if there is such a thing as over here, we have hard news and over here we have opinion. And though, as you point out in your article, the line is getting grayer and grayer between them. We still have these two polar. Uh, I don't know that we have two polar opposites. I think that news is always delivered in a context of persuasion. Would you react to that? Uh, sure, I'll react to a few things you said. You you're you mentioned the, the I guess the concept of objectivity, and that's one that I think even going back to to journalism school thirty years ago, my my professor at Oklahoma Christian taught that that really wasn't an achievable ideal, that fairness was more achievable because we would all bring our personal worldviews and experiences to what we wrote. So I've, mm-hmm. I've always strived. I think fairness is achievable. Balance is something that you can see easier, but objectivity, I would agree that that's kind of a concept that's harder to achieve or even know what it means. The, the tweets that you mentioned on AP, I mean, I agree they look bad, but also you're dealing with, with, a, with a news organization that's probably done several thousand tweets over the years about Obama and several thousand about Trump. So it's you would probably need a much more comprehensive analysis than somebody who found two tweets that they thought didn't match up and compared those. I'm not... I mean, I agree that those two side by side don't look good, but I'm not, you know, my, I would be looking for more context and more understanding and somebody to do a word search through both, you know, through their Twitter feed to see if indeed that, that Obama got, that his, his actions along a similar nature received a more positive response or a more positive portrayal on that wire service than Trump. I mean, I wouldn't, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if, if those, if those tweets <laughs> were, were accurate, but I'm just, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm skeptical, too skeptical to accept it at face value with a little more information. <laughs> and I've rambled a little bit. And I'm trying to remember. The polar opposites of hard news versus opinion. Are they really, can we really see them as opposites? Is there really such a thing? We we all agree there's such a thing as opinion. Do we really believe there's such a thing as objective hard news? Well, I I obviously do, or I wouldn't have spent 30 years doing this. I think my goal, and again, I don't know how achievable this is in writing a story, has always been to kind of take myself out of it as much as possible and have the people or the sources that I'm representing be able to go into that story and and read it and say, yeah, he quoted me accurately. That's how I feel as opposed to me taking someone's words and twisting 
what they've said or putting them in a wrong context and them going, no, that's not what I meant. That's not, that's not where I was coming from. So my go in a story, you know, obviously I'm going to have personal opinions on a lot of things I'm reporting about, but my go would be to quote people on both sides or all sides. Most things are usually more than two sides and have them be able to read a story and feel like, Hey, that news story I don't agree with everybody that's quoted there, but I thought it was fair to me. I thought it was accurately presenting where I'm coming from. So, I mean, I think, and I think there are some journalists and some news organizations that do a better job at that than others. And then honestly, there are a lot of times I'll read a, you know, a quote, a straight news story where I'm like, did you, do you not even want to pretend that you don't have a dog in this Right or whatever that cliche is, because it's so obviously biased. Sure, that's that makes a lot of sense. I, I, and I also appreciate that. Um, you know, meaning is kind of is is something that we find together. It's not something that can be, I think, objectively defined. Um, and so the idea that there is such thing as objective truth is a, is is in and of itself evidence that someone's working from a positivist perspective, which is fine. I think it's something it's it's quite possible that we're constructing truth together and it's quite possible that we're figuring this out in real time that there isn't such thing as objectively uh good or objectively bad when it comes to for example economic policy or economic outcomes that these are things that we're trying to understand within contexts of time so that when you when you bring up the word context I think that makes a, a great deal of sense um from a philosophical point of view not merely from a um uh, from a reporting point of view, I guess one of my questions, Bobby, gets down to um, particularly when we're talking. I mean, our audience are Christians, right? So, how do we think about ourselves as we engage in um, consuming media? Um, and I'm, I, I feel like maybe I'm putting you on the spot uh, to tell your readers what they should, how they should read, <laughs> but. Yeah. Um, if you had a chance to tell your readers how they should read, what would you tell them? You mean if I had a chance to tell just Christians in general how they should read? Yeah, the yeah. News? How they should read the news? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it. I think I am. I am one hundred percent on board with people being skeptical of news. I, I guess the thing that frustrates me more than anything is we as Christians supposedly believe in truth, and yet they're so. We're so gullible as far as what we will believe or what we will pass yeah. along on social media that I wish that our that, yeah. we, that the people who are supposedly so concerned about truth would not be so willing to, to pass along just crazy conspiracy theories or things that have no basis in truth. I mean, I'm, I'm one, obviously, based on some of what I've said already, who thinks that the media, there I go using, you know, that big, you know, the new industry or however you want to put it, could improve in a lot of ways. But I think there's enough constructive, actual things to criticize and make better in that we lose credibility as Christians when we, when we just show ourselves to, to, to believe anything and, and to, Hmm. I'm not, I don't know if I'm making a lot of sense, but I get so frustrated. No, that makes a great deal. Of yeah. I, stuff that's just total nonsense that people that 
or in most facets of their life are smart, intelligent people will will pass along. And, and I'm like, maybe you could learn to Google I mean, or find, you know, through <laughs> before you put it out there. Yeah, I really like that answer, Bobby. And I think you're right. If we are supposed to be so interested in truth, both capital T and small t, then well, we should be more careful, certainly more skeptical um, with what we decide to pass along and what we decide is important. Um, I think what we pass along indicates what we think is important. And sometimes that's not done very carefully, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. And I was thinking even in... You know, is today I wrote a column, the the weekly column that I write on religion, and, and pointing was pointing to an article that Ed Stetzer had at Christianity Today related to just the fact that gullibility is not a spiritual gift. And I had pointed out that that that, that two decades ago, this would have been I think two thousand one. I was religion editor at the Oklahoman, and I had I wrote a column in which kind of tongue-in-cheek said, you know, we should name the official Christian website, we are gullible.com, just because, <laughs> you know, that was, that was pre-social media, but it was, <laughs> it was like, the, the, the thing back then is, is there was an email that was viral and going around that, that, that there was a, an atheist petition drive that was trying to get Sunday morning religious program off the air. And, and it was right. one of those things that had been disproved time and time again, yet Christians were continuing to forward this email to every all their friends. And it's like we're, we're almost 20 years later, and we're still passing along information that's just totally untrue, that if we took five seconds to Google or try some other way to figure out, we would realize that it wasn't wasn't accurate. It wasn't a factual. I, I kind of hinted at this when we asked you to come on, Bobby. I think there's something insidious in that. I don't think it's just that we make mistakes. I don't think it's just gullibility. I think it's that um, we harbor points of view that are sometimes um, codified in our religious and cultural worldviews that um, are manifest by what we choose to believe. It, let me Let me be less philosophical and just say it out loud. I think sometimes it's it's convenient for me to believe something about um, someone because it matches my fear of their race or of their uh, nation of origin. I think sometimes it's easy for me to believe uh, the worst about someone because they're of a different faith than I am. It's easy to fall into those things because it's not just gullibility. I think that gullibility comes from somewhere. And it's I'll, it's sin. It's believing that th- that other people are necessarily and completely evil. It's it's a sin. It's not just that. It's not just that people have cognitive uh, are making cognitive errors. I'm contemplating that. I, I I don't know that I would disagree with that. I'm thinking about something you said a moment ago, Scott, that I want to return to, and I want to nudge. I started to say push against, but I want to nudge Bobby a little bit. Okay. Okay. When you were talking a moment ago about qualitative research and how we build truth together, how that's part of the field uh-huh. of that methodology, it's also, uh, I was always taught when I was doing that type of research that the writer has to declare his or her biases. 
you um you do you well you want to explore them you may not even declare them but you want to definitely explore them bracketing or taking oneself out and becoming explicitly objective is an impossibility and that's something that we embrace in qual research we say it is impossible for the researcher not to see things through her or his own lens it's right. impossible and you- so so what you begin to do is obs- try to observe your lens also recognizing you're never actually going to see your lens. I mean, the Jahari window of things I know about myself and don't know about myself include uh, include secrets that are hidden from me. So, you know, qualitative research has gone through a lot of evolution in the last 30 years. But um, I think one of the things we've evolved from is this belief that we can be objective outside viewers if we just took stock of our lens and I think is becoming increasingly aware that I'm a part of this whether I want to be or not. Right. And and there's even there was an article years ago that said we should stop using the term participant observer and start using the term partisan participant. Yeah. <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense. Right. And and yeah. so but I see this absolutely not present in the in the news world. I mean no one says um I am a flaming liberal or I am a staunch conservative. And you need to know that as I present the following article, right? That's, that's not part of it. And I, and so what's left then are for people to judge that for themselves. So, well, that, I think that's, I think you're onto something. I think there's, you know, there, and, and Bobby, I remember hearing, um, I don't know who it was, but I remember hearing some, it was more than one newscaster saying that they don't vote you know, to, so that they can maintain their objectivity, um, which to me just, you know, in, in our time suggests that they're fooling themselves. I mean, don't you have an opinion when you see facts and doesn't that somehow influence your understanding of those facts? Uh, I think it's obviously it does. Transparency has become kind of a buzzword and journalistic sources and I don't know how many years, but the kind of the idea being what y'all were talking about as far as everybody does bring biases to it is we're not, we're going to be transparent about those biases. And with the idea being that readers can know where I'm coming from and what my background is, and then they can judge what I write based on what they know about the perspective I'm bringing to it. But if I'm a reporter and I come to you with an article that that appears uh, to be properly sourced, it appears to be uh, based upon um, observable facts, do you care that I'm a flaming liberal? I mean, does it really matter to you from an editorial perspective that I have a lens if if it seems that my lens is not necessarily twisting the, the facts in the article? Not necessarily, but let's say you're you're someone with a with a Twitter account and a Facebook account, and you three or four times a day are voicing your opinion on a whether you what you like about a particular politician or what you don't like about a particular politician. I'm not inclined to have you write a a what would supposedly be an impartial article for my publication because I'm, I'm still old school enough that I, that, that obviously I have opinions and I have perspectives, but I'm not going to be sharing those publicly because I don't want to be. 
Interesting. Very and interesting. I mean, uh, the, you know, for the longest time, you know, even journalist, you know, Jim Lehrer that you mentioned from PBS who wouldn't vote, he was obviously the exception because most journalists do vote like most Americans, but they, at the same time, I don't think you'll, if you could check my Twitter account, you could check my Facebook. I don't think you would find anything anywhere that would indicate who I voted for for president or who I voted for for governor or anything like that, because those are things that I don't, I don't need a reader to think, well, he voted for Trump or he voted for Clinton. And then I'm going to try to write a, a, a quasi down the middle news article about that. Well, how, how can I do that when I've kind of advocated for a particular side publicly? But I've struggled with that too. And I, I talked about it in a previous episode where in ministry, I had the same problem, Bobby. I couldn't, I, I never told people where I came from or anything about my, my political views because I didn't need that getting in the way of the, you know, the gospel. I don't need them thinking that um, they have to agree with me on this in order, in order to share my allegiance to Christ. So I totally get that, uh, that you have to professionally think about whether you're, whether you get to talk about your, your, uh, your hot sports opinions or not. Right. Right. And we even, we even had a guest several months ago, Albert Acosta, who said, and he's a pulpit minister and he said outright, I do not vote. Yeah. Because I don't want to mess with the, how it changes. He, these are my words, not his messes with his ethos as he tries to talk about other things. Yeah. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Scott, I welcome your uh, interruption a moment ago, but I wasn't quite finished with my nudging. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, Go, your okay. interruption sorry, was quite apropos. Okay. My nudge is this. In fact, Bobby has already started to answer it, so <laughs> he doesn't even know it. <laughs> but uh, you're well on your way to answering my question, Bobby. I, I wanted. I think what you were talking about a moment ago, I would call the difference between accuracy and objectivity. So I think what you were saying a moment ago Uh, about making sure facts check out and that it's written, a particular article is written uh, in in an accurate way. And then if you write three articles, you want to see that they they jibe or don't jibe, but you want them to equal some kind of a fair impression on the readership. And I want to go back to talking about rhetoric for a moment and see if you agree with this. I think... When you're talking about how discourse moves an audience, there's short-term, which I might call an accurate article, but there's also long-term. And long-term, I think, is what causes Trump to say the media is is the enemy of the people. Now, I I don't want to put myself in a position of defending Trump. I, I think Trump says a lot of things that are very strange and that don't make sense and some that sound more horrible than they are and some that are horrible. But I don't think he was trying to mimic fascism when he said that. I think what he probably meant was the media says a lot of things I don't like and they are my enemy and I want them to be your enemy too. Scott, would you agree with that? No, but go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's not necessary to listen to Scott anymore. Anyway, um, (laughs) what I want to say is I think the long-term rhetorical effect of the media is 
far more interesting as its effect on its readers and listeners to analyze. And the, the way you started this conversation, Bobby, was a way I often start in my classroom is I ask students, how many of you watch the 530 news? And most of them have seen it or do watch it regularly. And I say, how in the world can that be an element of persuasion? These are people who in a span of 30 minutes are just telling us what happened today. How can that possibly be persuasive? And we get into the very discussion that you can imagine where people eventually say, well, there are many more things that happened today than what that person chose. And the, the editor of the news chose a certain selection of events and characterized them in a certain way through language. And that's the rhetorical effect. And I would agree and say over years and years, those rhetorical effects add up. And the hot, quick example I'll give you um, and then I will stop talking and let you respond, is the a narrative that has been created um, by, and it's become accepted in the listenership and readership, I feel, in this country, that when a person does not have an amount of money that he or she believes, or that the reporter believes, allows them to go see a doctor and pay for that visit, they will use the expression denied access. So this person does not have access to a doctor because he or she or I, the reporter, feel that there's not enough money. Instead of saying this person does not have what he or she feels is enough money, they will say this person does not have access to medical care, which is necessarily at one remove of analogy because there's not a person standing at the door of the doctor's office with a gun saying, if you try to come in here, I will kill you. That would be denying access. A person who does not have money in hand to pay for an office visit has many more options than to just sit at home and say, I've been denied access. But that expression, that turn of phrase has been absorbed into our bloodstream uh, by the news media machine, as we have called it, so often using that term that it is no longer questioned and people no longer are skeptical of it. So to me, the long-range effects, the long-range rhetorical effects are far more interesting because they're far more dangerous than whether a particular article is accurate. What, what are your thoughts to that? And Scott, you can chime in too. I guess, obviously, I'm not an expert on rhetoric. What I would say is that I think worldview of where journalists that are reporting the news come from, that that's a big issue. We've talked a lot about individual journalists and trying to get an article factual and trying to come, you know, be transparent and come at it on an individual basis. But I, I think a lot of what we see comes down to the fact that most of the people in the news business are probably coming from a, a more predominant worldview than than maybe the public. I mean I think I think the number I see would be would say eighty percent of journalists would fit more, you know, would, would be more likely to have voted for Obama than Trump and that would be more likely to you know, in most cases wouldn't be 
some wouldn't be coming from a conservative type of Christian or other faith background so that you've got an industry that, you know, even in cases where they are really trying to report fairly and accurately, they're coming at it with worldviews where maybe they don't really understand the people they're writing about. And, 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 you know, you can make up for that in some ways by being a sensitive reporter and by really trying to understand people. But a lot of, a lot of what we're dealing with is just the fact that you've got different worldviews and you've got the information, the gatekeepers of the information as we used to call it kind of coming from, from one worldview and, and which would be more inclined if you're coming, you know, if your view of the world is, is a, is a liberal political view of the world where everybody should have government funded healthcare, then you are probably more apt to use the terminology that you described as far as denied care or denied access. And so a, a lot of what we see from the news media is they, they, they don't have a lot of, a lot of diversity as far as, as the types of people who are there and reporting on the information. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but just it's kind of a, a lot it of a systemic issue, whether that's a rhetorical issue, I don't know, but I think it is just a, an issue of the fact that, you know, the news media has tried real hard in recent years to, to, to increase ethnic and cultural, well, not co- ethnic diversity, racial diversity, but I don't think they've tried as hard to increase religious diversity and, and, and political diversity among the people that are working at a mainstream type of news organization. So I think some of the issues you describe, and you know, you see it also in coverage of things like religious liberty or same-sex marriage as far as the terminology and how things are couched in kind of who's portrayed as the hero and who's the villain. A lot of that goes back to the demogra- demographics of the news industry itself. One thing that uh, the listeners may not know is that sometimes Cole and I prepare for these conversations, and <laughs> that's a joke. Um, but last last uh, we we did we did have a conversation together uh, a couple of days ago about this, and that was one of the big arguments that we had was whether the le- the media is liberal. And Cole said the media is liberal, and I said no, it's not. And now you said yes, it is. Am I hearing you correctly? I'm saying you think that they, you think that eighty percent carry something like a liberal point of view. I'm I'm saying I think I've read a poll and I don't have it handy, but that would say eighty wow. percent okay. of journalists voted sure. w- did not vote for Trump, and and then and then you have polling data that says eighty percent of self-described evangelicals did vote for Trump. You can see where those where you're dealing with yeah. different audiences, and so what you end up with is we're three years into the Trump presidency and you've still got a lot of people who still just can't figure out how so-called Christians could have voted for a a divorced guy who talks like he does and talks like about women like he does and, and still don't grasp the fact that, you know, issue the issue of abortion is so important to them and some other issues they are willing to overlook some things that, you know, probably when 
other presidents were in office, they would have been on the other side saying, we need a man of character. And suddenly they're, they're on the other side saying, you know, that character yeah. thing, we weren't serious about that. So, I mean, it's... You're answering my question very, very well. I, I hear you saying that we end up talking past one another because there's, if, and that that's very helpful for kind of understanding the, maybe the conflict here is that, you know, um, Christians in general, maybe thinking in one direction and um, journalism thinking in a different direction. We walk past one another and not really uh, understanding each. That's, that's a very, that's a very helpful paradigm. Scott, I can't imagine why you don't think the vast majority of news media person, personnel and personalities are liberal. I, I can't understand why you would not think that. I think even the liberal media knows that the media is liberal. <laughs> I think, I, well, uh, uh, um, there's a difference between people happening to have a worldview and being in the media means that you're going to be, I mean, there's, there's a, some kind of causal relationship. I don't think that it's necessarily causal. Um, unless education becomes a part of that causal relationship. I and mean, most journalists have degrees and most people with degrees would probably put themselves, you know, a little bit on, on the liberal side of the scale. Um, I think maybe there's something about, I think we've talked about this before. I do think there's probably something about, um, looking at individual cases rather than looking at large systems that causes people to think about, um, the effects. I mean, if it's, it's one thing to to talk about, um, COVID-19 and that only, you know, 0.2% of people who get it seem to be dying. And that's a very different thing from when, you know, your, your, um, your aunt Margaret dies. That's a very different conversation, right? So knowing or seeing or observing specific instances or specific stories, I think brings about a different lens than, than, uh, looking at, uh, large data sets and, I don't know. I think there are a lot of things that probably play into the to the to that perspective. But I think where I was reacting to was that if you are in the media, then that is somehow in a, a causal relationship to your li- being a liberal. Oh, I don't think that being a journalist makes you liberal. No, I think I think you are a, that it welcomes liberal viewpoints and liberal writings. And as Bobby mentioned a while ago, you have editors who do not say, whoa, let's let's be careful about how we are appearing not to be objective. Instead, they're like, bring it on. Bring these articles on that do damage rhetorically to conservatives. And I'm, I think that's why... Go ahead, Bobby. I was, I'm not sure that's exactly the point I was making. I think the point that I was making, not maybe not extremely well, was that, that even, you know, even journalists who are striving for those highest ideals of impartiality that when you put it all together and and, and you're putting and you have a predominant worldview looking at things that maybe there maybe blind spots is is more the way to put it than bias is that you may not even know and you may you may think that you're being fair and then people who are because you're coming at it from whatever angle and you may not even realize sure. what you miss. I think maybe was more of my point than the idea that that there are that there are newspaper editors or, or people out there with an agenda and saying, "Hey, let's go out and report this in a biased fashion and push our agenda." Because I don't know that that's what I believe. Even 
at some of the pub, you know, the publications that are constantly on Trump and seem to constantly be reporting on him negatively, probably from their perspective, think we're just, you know, we're just reporting the facts and we would, we would, we would give this level of coverage to any politician. I think the question comes in, you know, on the other side is, well, you know, you've got sexual, sexual assault allegations against Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court and then Joseph Biden for the for the presidency <laughs> on the Democratic side. And then why is the level of coverage on, on on allegations that both seem to have a lot of details lacking? Why does one side wall to wall coverage and one's kind of we, we do a little bit of coverage and then it's in and out? Yeah, it's a whimper. That's a great point, uh, a great illustration. And I appreciate your res- I I take your your point and that you're being um, more reserved than I am. And I'm being very pointed and saying more than just a viewpoint. I absolutely think that there is an agenda. And now I'm going to sound like a crazy person. And I don't want to do that either. OK, like a conspiracy theorist. But I, and that's that's really I'll even go so far as to say I believe that people in the media who have an overt agenda have that agenda for reasons that they think are the right reasons. I can, that's that I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I was about to say I would like to talk you out of believing that the media has a has an agenda for for Jesus reasons, not for cognitive reasons. No, 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 no. I I think that. Um, but your qualifier makes a lot of sense when you're saying I don't. Maybe they maybe they they're maybe they're acting on what they believe by their own lights is their best in, their best intentions but it's just not it's not necessarily good right it's not good to have media exercising right. their agenda even when they believe that it's uh, they're doing it for the best reasons right right i got it that makes sense i i the reason i'm saying that cole is i don't um i'm i'm becoming convinced that conspiracy theory or believing that there are forces who are acting on certain agenda dehumanizes um people who occupy those positions and that's where it kind of gets down to me this is this was my gut reaction bobby in the first paragraph of your article was the ways in which um we treat people who do things as though they're not people because they uh because we see them through the lens of their profession or we see them through the lens of their or or we might see them through other lenses like race or or religion that we tend to um, accidentally vilify and dehumanize and turn somebody into some, I don't know, caricature instead of seeing them as people who love their, love their kids Hmm. (laughs) who want to do the right thing. Um, And I, I guess this whole conversation has made me nervous just talking about the media as though uh-huh. the media is the thing. It's they're people, they're people and people are more complex than whatever, um, than whatever conspiracy theory has defined them to be. Yeah. And so are politicians. Yeah. That's a great point. I got to listen to you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. People, they're people. They're not, they're not a collection of ideas. They're not a caricature. Um, they, and they have to be treated as people. But by us, if, if we carry Jesus's name on our foreheads, they have to be treated as people by us. Scott, I'm, look, I'm aware of the time here, and I don't want to run out. I, I would really like to give Bobby a chance to talk about 
Um, you know, our, the thrust of this podcast is what it means to be a Christian in the public square. And your vast experience of writing for faith-based organizations and writing for secular-based organizations, I wonder if you have anything to say about <clears throat> what you feel is the best role of a Christian in the information age in a job like yours. I think the best role would, would be to just be someone who is kind, someone who, I mean, I don't, hmm. I don't think that our, that this industry needs someone to come in and say, you're, you're the liberal media. And so I'm here to, I'm here to fix you because you guys have problems. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we need yeah. someone to be kind. We need, we need, young people to go into the profession, not trying to push an agenda, but I mean, we need young Christians who see the value of, of reporting facts and reporting information and, 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 and bring it, bring that maybe the worldview and, and, and where they grew up and where they're coming from. You know, I think part, you know, part of the issue to get back to what we were talking about as far as the demographics of the news media is, if all of the people that are reporting everything are people from, you know, the East Coast elite universities, then you're missing a whole big middle section of the country. And in some cases, that's because that's who news organizations are hiring. But in the other other cases, it's because maybe Christians, particularly conservative Christians, haven't put a big value on news and, and journalism. And so we need more people of faith to kind of be committed to the ideals of of what good journalism is as opposed to the so-called liberal media that we caricature well that's a great answer it is mm. and if you're talking about being kind first of all that's my favorite word and second of all you're very kind to join us today bobby. yes bobby <laughs> <laughs>